Women's Health Melbourne is a boutique specialist fertility and women's health practice, caring for women at all life stages. We're proud to provide world-class holistic medical care, including IVF and a range of other fertility treatments. We provide our patients with every opportunity to achieve their goals. Our two Melbourne locations are in Fitzroy and our new state-of-the-art Caulfield practice. Reach us at womenshealthmelbourne.com.au and you can follow both Women's Health Melbourne and Dr Rayleigh Alou on the socials. Let's get started. Sounds good. So, as we've just said, it's back on. Are there any exceptions to the elective surgery in IVF? Yeah, there are. Yeah, there are. We haven't been given full um, full range. We're allowed to do category one and urgent category two elective cases, uh, and that comes down to the level of urgency. But we've also got restrictions because the hospitals are only allowed to run at twenty five percent of their normal capacity. So. We won't be given all of our lists back or all the capacity for all of our lists um, at the moment. So while elective surgery is not banned anymore, it's not free range. Okay. And in terms of fertility, that's all back on, all options, IUI and yeah, so There hasn't been any restrictions on IVF practices. There hasn't been any definition of what is considered more urgent, less urgent. It's, it's just yeah. all back on. Which is great. Yeah. Will embryo transfers still go ahead in a public setting? So you mentioned that hospitals are at 25% capacity. And yeah. I guess public hospitals are really busy as it is. That's it. What will happen to the public? Look, it, it's, it's much harder to comment. And the uh, advantage of working, I guess, in a private setting is that a lot of private settings don't do anything else but IVF. So, like, for example, at Melbourne IVF, where I do my IVF treatment, there's no other kind of service I suppose that the day hospital for the unit need to provide and so we don't really have to juggle whereas places like the women's hospital they do have a lot on their plate it's you know all the routine obstetrics and gynecology practice as well as IVF being a small part of what that hospital has to offer and also there are levels of administration that also interpret what what the hospital's needs are and um, what services can be prioritised with safety of all people involved. And so it's really hard to comment. I'm waiting to hear uh, what will happen at the women's. Um, everyone who knows me knows I am committed to my public role as well and I do go to the women's hospital regularly. Uh, but we're, we're waiting to hear back on what's possible in the public. So I'm sorry, I don't have an answer for that one. So you probably need to ask your specific fertility specialist what's happening with your case. Well, in the public, you don't have a specific oh, you don't fertility have, specialist. Okay. No, no. So when you're when you're when you're a, a patient at the public unit, yeah. um, visiting doctors like myself are there at the consultant level to advise our fellows who are our specialists in training, who mostly do the practical side of management of all IVF cases at the women's. Mm -hmm. And um, we're there to guide them and to advise them. And when they're very junior, to teach them how to do things. They often become independent relatively quickly because by the time you're in um, 
training to be an IVF subspecialist, you've already done a lot of gynecology training and you're already quite skilled in terms of gynecological procedures. So learning the procedural aspects of IVF, um, you know, you become independent at that level of training quite quickly. Uh, so most of the time we're there to supervise, but procedures will be done by uh, our fellows who are amazing. And, um, and I'd say it's very competitive to get a job as a CREI fellow at the women's. So, you know, well done to our trainees. They're awesome. But in terms of, um, you know, having your own doctor, it's just not something that can be offered in the public system in any sphere. And while the doctors who work in the public are the same doctors that work in private, and, you know, but we just can't take ownership and steer the ship for every single patient individually because that's not how the public system works. Okay. For those with anxiety, can this affect the outcome of assisted reproductive treatment? Definitely. So we had on our podcast recently Mandy Azale talking about acupuncture and how that can help IVF outcomes. And we, you know, talked about how one of the ways that it really helps is by helping couples deal with the insane levels of stress and pressure um, brought on by infertility and also the treatment for infertility. So definitely I think it can. And I think there are we've got to recognise that every patient is individual and the level of anxiety and stress is something that is relatively subjective. Everybody might react to the same situation slightly differently. So I think we've got to know ourselves a little bit and get to know what our triggers are and what our stresses are and what the kind of things are that might make us feel better and really look into that. So whether that's, you know, cutting down work hours, whether that's um, things like giving yourself some space, having a break, having massage, having acupuncture, doing yoga, doing meditation, mindfulness, Whatever it is that helps you de-stress, I think that can only be beneficial in terms of the outcomes of assisted reproductive treatments and natural fertility for that matter. Okay. Ah, could you go through the IVF paperwork process and waiting times? Sure. So this will differ slightly unit to unit because some things are compulsory and other things are more, I guess, intrinsic to the process of a particular IVF unit. It's different state to state. Victoria is probably the most rigid and specific state where things like counselling are mandatory rather than um, optional. So you have a counselling appointment, you have a, in my unit, you have a nurse education appointment, which goes for about an hour. And when I've made a treatment plan for my patient, the idea is that one of my nursing team kind of breaks it down into, you know, kind of little aspects so that patients all over every aspect of care so for example I might make a treatment plan prescribing medications but my nurse will sit down and show patients physically what the medications look like and how to use them and give them support on how they might self-administer medications or give them information on all the phone numbers for calling for help if they need help out of hours um, walking them through their consent information which I've already gone through with them and then I'll go through with them again. So we, we just spend a lot of time on education. Um, so mm -hmm. those appointments are generally quite quick to get. You can make those, depending on your flexibility, you can generally get those appointments done within a week or so. But the kind of other part of the process in Victoria, which is being looked at, and they're thinking about getting rid of it, but at the moment it's still there, um, is you have to do in Victoria police checks and you have to do child protection checks. And these are government documents that have been legislated as critical. 
and you have to, in the Victorian in the Victorian state, not anywhere else. And it's just basically about submitting them to the police, and um, they sort it out. And it can take a couple of weeks. Okay. Yeah. Usually, I would uh, say. Um, you're also sorry to go back on you when you um, when you see me. Say, for example, when we decide that you want to do IVF or IUI, anything that involves a lab. You know, you do those checks, you do those appointments. It's all quite a lot of information. I'd usually say. Um, you come back and see me for a consent appointment, you've got to give it about a month. You know, a month from when we make the decision to do IVF is about when we can start. And sometimes that can be done faster if you've come for a second opinion and you've had some of those or all of those checks done elsewhere. Ah, so we had this question a few weeks ago. Um, is there a program to recruit sperm donors during COVID-19? And this um, listener, she was particularly worried that the stores might deplete. Yeah. Well, look, at the moment, there's no shortage of donors. And at the moment, um, we are, again, recruiting new donors. So there, there ah, will so be started up again. recruitment. There will, be, there will be recruitment once um, the staff has come back. So basically what has happened at my unit, but also I'm sure at every IVF unit, is when we were given notice that we couldn't do IVF, you know, where we have 0% of the number of patients that would normally come through to have IVF. There's, there's so many staff involved in IVF. You, you think about the doctor, you think about the scientist, but there's a huge lab, there's full of scientists, there's administrators, there's um, nurses, the, nurses. the day hospital nurses that look after patients during the cycle. There's whole tiers of, of people who work together in a team to really make the magic happen. And in terms of having only a tiny fraction of the workforce available during the time that a lot of people were asked not to come to work, to stay home, uh, we just could not run recruitment of sperm donors. But now that we've been given a green light to start IVF again, every aspect of the IVF program will start up again slowly, so we will be again recruiting donors. Great news. Mm. Can mild adenomyosis impact natural and IVF pregnancy rates? How was my pronunciation? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> adenomyosis. Oh, there you Ad go, right. I'm sure adeno on the... means gland. Adeno means, ah. anything adeno means gland. Okay. So what adenomyosis, just for anyone who doesn't know what it is, um, is basically when the glands that line the endometrium, which is kind of the, the carpet or the garden bed where an embryo will implant inside the womb, when those glands kind of go a bit rogue and go into the muscle and um, they form little kind of glandular projections into the muscle and it, it's a little bit like a fibroid, which is like a swirl in the muscle, um, but instead of being discrete, it's quite diffuse, so kind of it, it can go into the muscle in different different areas of the uterus. It tends to, over time, be progressive, and it tends to have specific findings on ultrasound, and also over time it changes the shape of the uterus to look a bit more like an old-fashioned light globe, not like a modern light globe, but kind of like a old-fashioned light globe and a bit back heavy so often the the back wall of the uterus is worse affected than the front for whatever reason um, and 
what basically happens is the muscle becomes a bit more spongy. Look, it's better not to have adenomyosis than to have it, that's for sure. But plenty of women have adenomyosis who have no fertility problems at all. It's more common in Paris women, so women who've had babies and can happen after a pregnancy. And most of the time it doesn't necessarily affect natural conception and it doesn't necessarily affect IVF and IUI. If it's severe, that can be different. So severe adenomyosis can distort the shape of the uterus and it can therefore change the function of the fallopian tubes. So it can make it more difficult for sperm and egg to get together. And it can cause very heavy periods, which is what a lot of people with adenomyosis complain of. Doesn't necessarily cause pain. Um, we do know if we look at population statistics of patients with adenomyosis, we do know that they do have more infertility and worse pregnancy outcomes, but it's not a direct relationship. And the most important thing about adenomyosis is surgically speaking, there's not a lot that you can do about it. I mean, you can try surgically to resect adenomyosis, but you can do more harm than good. And most of the time, a gynecologist would recommend not to do that. There are some medical treatments that can be helpful and what they are is hormonal deprivation of the uterus of estrogen. So we can shut down the hormones for a while uh, and that can shrink back the adenomyosis a bit and that can sometimes be helpful, but it's really necessary. It would only be in extreme cases that we'd be thinking about that. Okay. And we've got a whole episode on that adenomyosis. that I can't... Yes. On our podcast. Want no, no, that's right, in the back catalogue. And, and fibroids as well, which you touched on. Okay. Ah, can endometriosis cause poor egg quality? It can, but it doesn't always. So the important thing about endo is it's a massive spectrum and it can go from being very focal and very mild to being very severe. Not all endometriosis affects the ovary, but sometimes it does. And we know that in women who have endometriomas of the ovary, it does certainly affect egg quality of surrounding egg-bearing tissue and, and developing oocytes. So you're, you're between a bit of a rock and a hard place with endometriosis of the ovary because when we operate to remove disease of the ovary, what we do is we inevitably destroy adjacent egg-bearing tissue through the heat energy techniques and even through the surgical techniques that don't involve heat just by stripping an endometrioma you'll, you'll inevitably damage some surrounding normal ovary and so you can in fact deplete a woman's ovarian reserve when we operate so we really have to make a choice of the lesser evil for a given patient and it will be a different balance for every patient so it's it's a difficult one sometimes with endometriosis and there have been a few studies on this and meta-analyses that have showed a benefit, sometimes we do the same thing as what I was talking about with the adenomyosis is to, from a hormonal perspective, really starve the endometriosis for a while and that can improve IVF outcomes for patients with bad endo, but it has to be done for several months to make a difference. What are your thoughts on the sense device? Okay, so no, not wanting to be sued by the company, <laughs> Let, let's talk in general terms so this is a device that measures your temperature to see when you're ovulating you wear it all the time and you know it just measures your temperature a thermometer yeah and you know associated with an app which gives feedback okay. the most important thing to say is that in my opinion 
we have overdone it in terms of relying on technology to tell us about our bodies and in terms of ovulation if you have a menstrual cycle that is quite regular and you are getting a period on day 28 or day 32 or whatever it is of your cycle but it's quite regular then you are ovulating regularly and you're ovulating regularly at mid-cycle and what I would suggest the best way to make sure that there is sperm waiting for the egg when it flashes by is that you have second daily sex from day 10 of your cycle if you're in that category for about a week and you will not miss the boat. Sperm can stick around in the body for up to five days and that is why as a species we are not extinct because an egg can only be around for about 24, 36 hours and then it's gone. So the sperm really have to be there lying in wait and trying to, you know, hit a moving target is not a very effective technique. You've got to have plenty of sperm and you've got to have it waiting there when the egg arrives. So in terms of um, devices to tell you exactly when you're ovulating, I think that one gives you an eight-day window, which is not very precise. and basically telling you the same thing as I am to have sex for a week in the middle of your cycle. Um, you don't have to overthink it. You just have to have lots of sex in the middle of your cycle. Now, when you have an irregular cycle, when you don't ovulate regularly, that's when apps can really let you down even more badly because what they do is they tend to calculate retrospectively what happened last month and make a prediction of what's going to happen this month. Now, if something's happening different every month, that prediction is not going to be worth very much. So I say throw away the apps and learn a bit about your body. If you don't know why it is that your cycle is not regular, we'll start there and go and see a doctor. It's not very difficult for me to figure that out. What I do is I do a set of blood tests, I look at your hormones, I do an ultrasound and, you know, check out when, why maybe things are not happening. Estrogen and malining is important. Uh, I just see a comment there pop up from Mandy. Try and enjoy sex, don't make it a chore. Absolutely, absolutely. It's not a chore. It's 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 a blissful baby making, but again, I understand you might get sick of it after a while. But um, try try not to make it a chore. <laughs> Um, but yeah, in terms of um, in terms of kind of the, the reasons behind why you're not ovulating, let's get to the bottom of that because if we know why, then we can address the why. And if we address the why, it might not be such a problem anymore because we might be able to help you ovulate more regularly. And if we help you ovulate more regularly, then you might be able to have sex at the right time more easily. So I think rather than invest in all the DIY, you know, kind of technology bad, bad devices um i would say you know get to the bottom of the problem recognize what's happening get a little bit more in tune with your body so that you notice when things change and sometimes that does require you know stepping back there's some good things about covered you know i know there's a lot of bad things but i think one of the good things is it would be very rare on a normal occasion for me to be on my front porch on a friday afternoon i think you know we can all step back a tiny bit and I think one of the things we can do is really get a little bit more in tune with um, the signs and and the feelings of our body and when our hormones change. You know, there's um, different phases of the menstrual cycle, different times. Mandy was talking to us about 
how in Chinese medicine they recognise the different times in the menstrual cycle and different things that are happening is true and you feel a bit different in different phases of the menstrual cycle. So just getting to know those feelings is also a really good way to know if you're ovulating. And of course there are some other estrogen dependent things like fertile mucus that if the well-trained eye and fingers can get a grip of. (laughs) Okay. What are the causes of failed implantation with PGS-tested embryos? Now, PGS, is that free genetic screen? Yeah, so the terminology has actually changed a bit, but I I think what the person who asked the question meant was... um, embryos that have been tested and found to have the right chromosomes, have the right DNA there. Okay. So the important thing to say is that it's really important when you are having IVF that you remember human biology underpins IVF. And we can only do as well as the human biology baseline. And when you have embryos that have the right DNA, that's a fantastic start but it's not a finish. We know that, you know, less than half of embryos that have the right DNA on day five are going to make a baby. So that's because when you start off on day five as this little ball of cells that has the right instruction manual, the assumption is that you follow that instruction manual to the letter. You make no mistakes and you do everything right. As well as that, your environment has to facilitate that. So, you know, that is why not every embryo will make a baby because they are human and they make mistakes. In terms of why things might fail, and let's flip the question to what can we do to try and ensure things do not fail? What can we do to optimise the chance of an embryo taking? Well, we've got to get the timing right. There is an implantation window that the embryo has to enter. If the door is shut, the the best embryo will not take. That's why in IVF, even if you've got a beautiful blastocyst on day six, um, we won't put it back because we know that in a stimulated cycle, that blastocyst doesn't stand a chance in hell of making it on day six because the door has shut and the implantation window is, is closed. So it's getting the timing right, getting the environment right, making sure there's nothing else going on in the uterus that will stop the embryo from implanting, making sure the pregnancy, which relies on the support of of hormones, mostly progesterone at this stage, is getting that hormonal support. So it's certainly important when we do what's called an artificial cycle, which is when we give a a medicated support rather than having that support coming from what's called the corpus luteum or where the egg is released from in a natural cycle, that we get those levels right and consistent because if they fall, the pregnancy can fail. So ensuring the environment is correct. Other things that can be great is to ensure the woman has good nutrition, to make sure she doesn't have any infection, to make sure there's nothing else going on that might impair implantation, and a variety of things can do that. One thing is autoimmune implantation concerns. That's actually incredibly rare. It's thought to be a lot more common than it actually is by a lot of people in the community because it's underappreciated how often and frequently completely normal embryos fail. So really you have to have, I think, set expectations realistically for patients because otherwise they will be devastated at what is a very natural and normal statistic. 
that, you know, at least one in two completely normal genetically tested embryos will not make a baby, they will make a mistake. So remember, embryos are only human. Not every embryo makes a baby. What we can do as doctors and practitioners and patients is to make sure that we do our best to get everything else right so that the things that are outside of our control are at least, you know, the only things that can go wrong. Thank you. Okay. Uh, is there a fertility specialist you can recommend in Sydney? Okay. Another question where I don't want to be politically incorrect, I can tell you there are many beautiful fertility specialists in Sydney, many of whom are my good friends because I trained in Sydney and um, I did all my ONG training in Sydney. I would say my feeling is that the best way to start is have a look on the ANSRI website, A-N-Z-S-R-E-R. -E that's the Society of Reproductive Endocrinologists and Infertility Subspecialists. So that's the CREI Doctors Society. And if you have a look on that website, you can look around Sydney at who holds a CREI and that those would be my first port of call in, in who to call on as, a, as an excellent fertility specialist who's been put through the ringer, who's done six years of ONG, who's done three extra years of infertility training, who's passed really hard exams and who continues to do continuing education to maintain their CREI. And that's a good place to start. Great. And then it's about personality too. So start with the qualification. Start with the qualification and the location. Sydney's a big place yep. and actually I think it's much harder to get around than in Melbourne. So start with the qualification, then look at your location and personality. Um, but I can tell you, you're spoilt for choice in Sydney. There's a lot of amazing fertility specialists in Sydney. Okay. Why is it that follicles could not grow despite being given letrozole? Could P cause B to blame? Yeah. So, look, again, it's an it's a interesting question. Um, follicles will grow in response to follicle-stimulating hormone. They're the only places in the body, the granulosa cell of the ovary, that has follicle-stimulating hormone. Letrozole is what you call an aromatase enzyme inhibitor, meaning that it inhibits the conversion of testosterone. So what it does in the body is it drops the level of estrogen. It's a very indirect way of trying to provoke your own body to make follicle-stimulating hormone by messing with a feedback loop between the ovary by the bloodstream to what's called the hypothalamus, which is like a thermostat in the brain that controls how the follicle-stimulating hormone is released. So different levels and different thresholds exist in different people depending on their androgen levels. I would never recommend giving letrozole to a woman who ovulates already regularly by herself. I think very little is to be achieved. There are some people around who like to mess with that, mess with letrozole, maybe add back estrogen. I honestly think if you're trying to provoke extra follicle-stimulating hormone in someone who's already got a normal axis, you give follicle-stimulating hormone and it's injectable and that's just how it's given. In terms of ovulation induction, 
as a rule for people who are not ovulating. It is a science, but it is also an art and everybody is different. What it requires is the first cycle to be closely monitored by ultrasound. It is a dose finding cycle. Everybody is different. There is no one regimen that will work for everybody. And you have to treat the individual in front of you uh, in terms of their condition and also what you're trying to achieve. And um, in my practice, patients come in for ultrasound monitoring for ovulation induction, and we use the medication that works and not every medication will be right for every person. But to focus on this question, um, it's, um, it's, it's, it's overly simplistic, and I don't say that in a pejorative way, but it's overly simplistic, and I think it reflects that you need to go to see your fertility specialist, if that's me, come back and sit down with me. And we'll go through again how these medications work and what we're trying to achieve because that's, um, you know, that needs to be clearly understood to be able to appreciate what what we need to do to find the right answer to get a follicle to grow. Okay. When should a couple decide to try IUI? Sure. So, look, IUI is a reasonable thing to try in a couple with, male factor infertility that is mild and we think we might be able to achieve natural fertilization in the body if we just fix the sperm concentration that reaches the egg marginally because that's what IUI can do and we can also use IUI in combination with what's called gentle circulation so asking a woman to make an extra egg or two so instead of the one egg that might pop up naturally we might ask the body to make um, a couple of eggs. Hi, Christina. Nice to see you. And in terms of that, there's always a chance of twins. There's always a chance of multiples, and we accept that chance. Hi, Tali. It's nice seeing all these names popping up. Um, and, um, yeah, so IUI is less invasive than IVF. It's less expensive than IVF. It's kind of not comparable, really, in a way, in that, it is a treatment for the moment or a treatment for the month. It's not something that has what's called a cumulative success rate, meaning that um, not, well, I guess that if it doesn't work, then you start again. Like there's nothing to put in the freezer. There's no embryos. It's not possible to have more than one baby um, over time from that treatment. It's just for the now. So, I guess one reason to do IUI is if you don't want to do IVF. Not everybody does. Some people have a moral objection to IVF or a religious objection to IVF. Um, certainly that's true in um, practising Catholics. So th there might be a reason that you want to try IUI because you fundamentally don't want to do IVF. Um, some people really want to do things as naturally as possible and certainly with IUI, fertilisation happens in the body. So those are the reasons that a couple might want to try IUI. Or if they can't have sex, that's another reason. Because a lot of people presume that you can have sex for those, you know, and obviously I just presumed in my last answer that people can have sex, you know, from day 10 onwards for a week. You know, some people can't have sex for various reasons. They might have vaginismus. They might have an erectile problem. They might have lots of different different reasons why they can't have sex. They might have a spinal cord injury. So, you know, you might use IUI for a variety of reasons when couples can't have sex. 
They might be in different states because someone travels for work. Mm-hmm. Might freeze sperm. Lots of reasons. <laughs> Is it normal not to ovulate every month? Not really. If you're in your fertile years, the the norm is you should ovulate every month unless you're pregnant or breastfeeding. Um, would getting your period mean you've ovulated? Yeah. If it's a period, it means you've ovulated. Is it true? Uh, I think, okay, so this is someone who apologised for going after a myth, but I, I, we love myth-busting. Um, is it true that miscarriages are more common in IUI? No. There you go. Totally a myth. Thankfully not true. Okay. Oh. How do you know if you have a, I can't say that. Varicocele. Varicocele. Or if it is just a normal healthy vein. Okay. So a clinical varicocele is when you look at the scrotum and you do a valsalva, so you kind of like hold your breath and like you're blowing up a balloon, so like that. And you see what the veins look like on the scrotum. And if you can see them, obviously, it's probably a varicocele. So if, if your partner has it or you, you've noted that you yourself, if you're a guy or your partner has a very veiny scrotum and you're having trouble having babies, it's probably time to show that to a doctor. What is a, what is a varicocele? I think we've done a podcast, a male for Yeah, we have. We did, yeah, disgusting. we've just released some male fertility. We did. Yeah, I get you if you're there. <laughs> um, we, um, we talked about it. It's, it's varicose veins of the scrotum. Okay. So varicose okay. veins around the testes. And the yep. reason they're a problem is that the scrotum and the testis likes to be a couple of degrees cooler than the rest of the body. And when it isn't, the sperm quality is not as good. Okay. So the temperature regulation is impaired in men with varicocele. Okay. And that's our last question. Wonderful. Well, thank you, everyone, everyone for, for joining us. And um, lovely to see you on Instagram Live. And we might do this again, but I think we're not going to be doing it on Friday afternoons anymore. So um, so um, thanks for joining us. But it's a we'll good reason we're not doing, doing it. it. We're going to be busy making babies. Very good. But people can join our email email newsletter list and they can listen to the podcast, which comes out on Mondays. So yeah. we're going to still be keeping everybody up to date. Yeah, and you can always send us questions through as well. We'll answer them in the podcast if, yeah. um, if you have questions you'd like us to address. And we also have the podcast um, email, which is podcast at womenshealthmelbourne.com.au. So you can send questions through that way as well if you'd like to. Great. Have a good weekend. Enjoy the sun. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I'm going to go for a lovely walk now. Enjoy. Bye, everyone. Yeah, you too, Mandy. Have a good weekend. Bye.